Well, good morning. If you're a copy of God's Word, please flip over to Luke chapter 20. Luke chapter 20. Picking up in verse 19 this morning. Luke chapter 20, verse 19. Scripture reading will run through verse 44. The scribes and the chief priests tried to lay hands on him that very hour. And they feared the people, for they understood that he spoke this parable against them. So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous in order that they might catch him in some statement so that they could deliver him to the rule and the authority of the governor. And they questioned him saying, teacher, we know what you speak and teach correctly and you're not partial to any, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But he detected their trickery and said to them, show me a denarius. Whose likeness and inscription does it have? And they said, Caesar's. And he said to them, Then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. They were unable to catch him in a saying in the presence of the people. Being amazed at his answer, they became silent. Now there came to him some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection. And they questioned him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote for us that if a man's brother dies having a wife, and he is childless, his brother should marry the wife and raise up children to his brother. Now there were seven brothers, and the first took a wife and died childless, and the second and the third mayor her. In the same way, all the seven died, having no children. Finally, the woman died also. In the resurrection, therefore, which one's wife will she be? For all seven had married her. And Jesus said to them, The sons of this age marry and are given in marriage, but those who are considered worthy to attain to that age and the resurrection from the dead neither marry nor are given in marriage, for they cannot even die any more, because they are like the angels." And are sons of God, being sons of the resurrection. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed in the passage about the burning bush, where he calls the Lord the God of Abraham, and of the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. And he is not the God of the dead, but of the living, for all live to him. Some of the scribes answered and said to him, Teacher, you have spoken well. For they did not have the courage to question him any longer about anything. Then he said to them, How is it that they say the Christ is David's son? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore David calls him Lord. How is he also his son? Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for your word. Father, we thank you for the truth of it. Father, we thank you for the way it challenges how we think about the world, how we think about ourselves, how we think about our relationships to you, to one another. Father, I pray that this morning our hearts and our minds will be open to the transformative truth that your word has for us here and this questioning and answering that took place with Jesus and those who opposed him. Father, when we search our hearts, may we ponder and consider those ways that we may be even unwittingly, standing in opposition to the things of the Lord. We thank you for it in Christ's name. Amen. So this morning, um, first Sunday, sort of back, there's um, been a lot of um, conversations about who are you supposed to listen to, who are you not supposed to listen to, at what measure can a free citizen in a free country like the United States exercise 
civil disobedience against local, state, and national governing authorities? Does that extend into other non-civic and political organizations like churches and places of business and things like that? And it's, it's been, I see the looks on everybody's face like, Philip, really? First week back, this is where you're going to go. Um, it's, it's, been, it's been about, hey, listen, it's not my fault. Listen, I planned this 65th or whatever sermon it is out of Luke a year and a half or two years ago. I didn't know there was going to be a COVID-19, and I didn't know there was going to be a semi-uprising against the concept of governing authority and what civil disobedience does or doesn't look like. I, listen, I'm good, but I'm not that good. I mean, come on. I had no idea that there would be all the buzz in the social media world of how do we engage with the variety of authorities that we find around ourselves, and that the first week we decide to come back is the passage on rendered to Caesar what is Caesar's. I, my, my wife was at home. She said, Philip, I looked ahead. This is really funny. Like, she even found humor in this. She thought it was a riot. So I would say we'd have lunch about this, but we won't yet. So, um, so this morning, planned out a long time ago, we're going to have a conversation about Jesus and authority and what that does and doesn't look like in the life of a believer. So the first thing that we want to see, this conversation that Jesus has with these religious leaders about um, uh, authority and the world, an engagement of the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. And so the question that they're asking Jesus is a question of trickery. It's designed to trap Jesus. This is what's going on. It's a question of trickery. It's a de- designed to trap. It's designed to catch him in a statement. Now, what exactly is the trap that they're trying to set? So they ask a, a question. Is it lawful for us to pay tax to Caesar. So the core of the question, that's the outward question. The outward question is, is it lawful to pay tax to Caesar? There's a question behind the question. There's a core to this question. And the core of the question is this, will you, Jesus, stand with the people of God or will you stand with those who are oppressing the people of God? That's the actual question that he's asked, that they're asking Jesus. They want to know who you're going to stand with, Jesus. You got to pick a side. There can't be any gray area here. There can't be any nuance here. There can't be any deep thought here. It's a black and white issue. You're either going to stand with the people of God or you're going to stand with the oppressors of the people of God. Which one is it? That's what's all wrapped up in this question. Are you, is it lawful for us to pay taxes to Caesar? That's what they're asking. And the problem is is that when it comes to conversations regarding the kingdom of God and its interaction with earthly citizenship, we find ourselves um, rarely in a place of a black or white answer, a yes or no answer. It's often much more complex and nuanced than that. Now, for many in this room, it may be very settled for you, it may be very black and white for you. How, how do you interact with the, the civic authority? How, do you, how does the kingdom of man interact with, the, with, the, with the, the, the kingdom of God, the city of man and the city of God concept? For some, you may have very, very strong and settled positions on this, and that's fine. The difficulty is that if you look back over the last 2,000 years of church history and the theologies that have emerged in different cultural contexts, that people have thought about and attempted to practically engage a relationship between the city of God and the city of man in real time and in real space, you've gotten 
every version of what this looks like from people who are otherwise orthodox. Because it's nuanced and it's complex. And it's a difficult thing to process. Now, of course, most of this theology have come from people who were in cultural context where there was still some version of a monarchy, which we don't have in the United States of America. It was some version of an aristocracy, some, many of them still living under pure tyranny, if you will, and the kinds of governments that they found themselves in. And yet they still had opinions about what this looked like. We have the manifest problem of living in a culture and a society that stood in opposition to the concept of monarchy, that stood in opposition to the concept of people not having their own independent freedom. And that's actually what we fought a war about to become the United States of America. So we get to add the extra wrinkle that no one else in church history gets to add of going the entire nation state that we live in was established on the concept of overthrowing the authority that we thought was oppressive. And establishing an authority that doesn't have a centralized person of power but has a distribution of power across multiple chains that actually finds its way from the people toward the government instead of the other way around. It's a really weird place for us to live in these past couple hundred years as Americans to try to have this conversation. But it's nuanced, even in the United States. You have people way over on one side who are absolute pacifists. You should never, ever do anything that resorts to any version of outward violence against any governing authority regardless of what they do. And then you have on the far other side uh, a group of people who say, you know what, if, well, I was going to talk about masks, but that might be too soon. Um, If someone were to tell me that I can't stand in line at a person, a particular place. No, I'm just going to go with the mask. It's the one that's on everybody's mind. If, if, if a person tells me I've got to wear a mask, well, then I might just have to raid the Capitol. Like, you really have those extreme views in the United States of America. From people who all deeply love Jesus. That, that wide of a range of viewpoints and everything in between those on how do we engage the civil government. And so this question that's being asked by the religious leaders is not a new kind of question. It's a trapping question. It's a question that doesn't take seriously the complex interaction between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of man. How those who have citizenship in heaven, yet current citizenship here on earth, should interact with the authorities, the physical, temporary authorities, that that they happen to find themselves under wherever they are born. It's a very difficult question to answer, but they're trying to make it as if it's really cut and dry. Hey, either you're with us or you're against us. You're on one side or the other. If Facebook had been around, it would have been all caps with lots of exclamation points. That's what this would have been. It would have been some sort of trending, what's Jesus going to say? Hashtag for us or against us. Hashtag Caesar is not God. You know, like the, this is what would have been happening in this time. You say, we have to make light of this because there's nothing, like King Solomon said, there's nothing new under the sun. People have been dealing with this for millennia. And so how does Jesus respond? How does Jesus respond? Well, he responds in a classic Jesus kind of way. Jesus, let's talk about what Jesus could have said. Let's talk about what Jesus could have said. Jesus could have answered this question either one of two ways and been justified. He could have called down the immoral, tyrannical Roman government. He could have said, Caesar is a tyrant, because he was. And the oppression that they've brought on the Jewish people is immoral and unethical. And it was. 
And he could have, justifiably, called for arms against the Roman government. There's lots of places in the scripture where it talks about prophetically foreign powers being overthrown because of their tyranny. He could have gone to some of the major prophets. He could have gone to a handful of the minor prophets. And he could have grabbed a hold of some verses that made it really clear we need to overthrow the tyranny. This injustice that's being done. He could have done that. Or he could have called the people, the Jewish nation, into subjection to the governing authority over them, even though it was tyrannical, because they need to remember that their true citizenship is in a kingdom above, not a kingdom below, and that their weapons of warfare are weapons of spiritual warfare, and that by resisting through graciousness and compassion the tyranny of those outside who might even take the, uh, the life from their bodies, they are declaring a greater allegiance that is even more powerful than weapons of war. You could also go to major and minor prophets for this argument as well. Jesus could have said either one of them. And you know what he didn't say? Either of those. He didn't do either one of those. He could have. He could have picked a side and said, all right, cool, let's do this. He didn't do that. Instead, and why did, well, before we get to what he did, why, why didn't he do either one of those? Well, that was the trap. That was the trap. If he said, yeah, you know, right, Caesar's a tyrant. The religious leaders have inroads with some of the governing authorities. That's why they're able to exercise with the kind of freedom that they were able to. They would have just gone to some of their buddies and said, hey, did you hear that? He's trying to, it's treason. He's trying to overthrow the government. They would have arrested him and killed him pretty quickly. Which, by the way, by the end of this week, they're going to do that anyway. For that exact reason <laughs> of tyranny, of, of treason, not tyranny, treason. But if he had said the other, but if he had said, well, no, you, you just need to be in subjection, the crowd probably would have turned on him. How dare you support these wretched oppressors? Don't you, you can't really be a Messiah if you want to leave us in subjection. The Messiah is supposed to free us, not keep us slaves. So if he answers that question either way that it's been presented, he's going to make an enemy of somebody. And I know that some of us in our minds have determined, this is true of me and it's, I know it's true of you, We've determined that a variety of opinions that we have, whether they're political, whether they're theological, whether they're whatever they have to do with, it doesn't really matter. Well, you know, sometimes you just got to make some people mad. And so I'm just going to make some people mad. That's not how Jesus did it. Jesus instead says, hey, I'll tell you what, give me, give me a day's wage coin, give me a denarius. And that's how much... This particular tax they were talking about, there were a lot of other taxes, but this particular tax that they were referencing was a, a denarius in an amount, which a denarius was a day's worth of pay. He said, give me a denarius. Whose image and likeness and inscription is on that coin? And he said, well, it's Caesar's. Because Caesar, being markedly arrogant... So it's not like our guys. When our money got printed, it's not like, you know, the presidents were like, hey, put me on the dollar or, you know, whatever. They didn't do, they didn't do that. Stamp me on the back of the coin. Like when they got put on, they were dead, you know. Somebody else decided to do that for them. Caesar's still alive and said, you better put me on the coin. Just to kind of give you an insight in the kind of guy he was, all right. You better put my face on there. You better put my name on there. 
And every time somebody goes to spend their money, they understand. I'm smiling right back at them. This, this, is, this is Caesar. This is who we're dealing with. He says, who's on this? And he said, well, it's Caesar's likeness. It's Caesar's inscription. It's Caesar. And in my spiritual imagination, I can see Jesus taking the coin that somebody handed him and tossing it back to him, flipping it back to him and say, well, then give to Caesar what is Caesar's and give to God what is God's. That's profound. What he just did there is profound. Why is it profound? Because it addresses both sides of the issue delicately. Every one of us is born into a social cultural context. Every one of us has to cipher through the best way to engage that social cultural context. And the answer is not always as clear as we would like for it to be. Sometimes there should be resistance. Sometimes there should be yielding. Sometimes there should be an odd tension between the two. There's not always just a real easy chapter and verse answer to tell us what that is, when that is, and how that is. But the reality of it is, is that we're all born into a social social and cultural context that has particular influence and sway on how we're able to live our lives. And we as citizens of a different realm have to filter through, how can I represent my true kingdom best in the temporary kingdom that I live in right now. And so that's, that's not easy. It's difficult. And when Jesus answers the question this way, that's what he's doing. He's saying, you know what? I'm temporarily under the authority of the Roman Empire. You say, no, he wasn't. He was king of heaven. Well, at the end of the week, I beg to differ when they pin him to a cross. The guy asked him, are you a king? It is as you say. Declaring yourself a king in the Roman Empire and your name wasn't Caesar, guess what? You're going to get killed. That's the law. Whether it's a true law, whether it's a good law, whether it's a bad law, whether it's a moral law, whether it's an ethical law, it was the law and that's what was going to happen to Jesus when he answered the question that way. He was yielding to the wretched authority that existed over him at the time. That's what he chose to do. Because it was part of a greater plan in a greater kingdom. And so when he answers the question this way, it's incredibly profound, but it's also very aggressive because this particular group of people, the religious leaders, had become all about the power that they could attain to in that social, cultural environment that they found themselves in. They were, gr- they were the greatest friends with the Roman government. The same one that they're trying to posture out loud in public that they were so opposed to, they're in the back making backroom deals with them to keep their freedom and their safety and their pockets lined just as well. Again, nothing new under the sun. And so when they're trying to call out Jesus and his allegiance, who are you, who are you aligned with? There was a massive level of hypocrisy. And so when he throws the coin back at him and he says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's, well, that's Caesar's money. It's his governing power. It's his face on the coin. It's their economic institution that's supporting the value of this particular coin that you make commerce exchange with. Give, give him back whatever belongs to him, but also render to God what is God's. Now, what's buried underneath this, and I wish we had more time for this, but we don't. 
what's buried underneath. Actually, y'all can't leave until somebody comes row by row to dismiss you. So we got all the time we want. So we might hang out here. So buried underneath this is the concept of image bearing. The inscription on the coin bore the image of Caesar. It was pressed in on the coin. He was asking a question about what image is this? Whose image is this? But Caesar's image. Then give it back to Caesar. Whose image are you? You bear the image of God. So give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar. Temporary, short-lived, short-sighted, easily destroyed, may or may not attain value, can be taken away at at the power of another. Caesar wants to find his value in putting his face on something as temporary as a coin. But you have been stamped with the image of God, which is everlasting. Are you yielding back to God the fact that you bear his image in the world? Are you reflecting the kingdom of God in your life where you live? That's the question that Jesus is asking them. It's incredibly aggressive. Because these were the religious leaders. They were supposed to be doing this above everyone else. They were supposed to be leading out by example what it means to reflect the image of God. And instead, they were massively more concerned with how things were going for them in the city of man. I want things to go as well for me as they can in the Roman system of government that I find myself in. If we can overthrow them, that would be great. But since we can't, I want to be able to rise as close to the top as I can while still seeming like I'm somewhat righteous and properly religious. They were trying to have a toe in both places. And the hypocrisy was abounding. And Jesus called them out on it. He said, listen, if you're going to give to Caesar what's Caesar's, make sure you're also giving to God what's God's. What are you doing with the fullness of your life? So friends, when it comes to authority in the world, it's nuanced, it's complicated, it's not cut and dry, it's very difficult. Augustine, in a sermon famously preached on this text, makes this statement clear. He says, these same enemies saw the miracles of the Lord. They said, tell us by what authority you're doing these things. They questioned him with hostile intentions, so that if he admitted what, he, what his authority was, they could hold him guilty of blasphemy. He acted in the same way over this coin when they wanted to accuse him falsely. If he said, let tribute be paid to Caesar, it'd be as though he had cursed the people of the Jewish nation, making them subject and tributary to this foreign power. If he'd said, it should not be paid, and they could trump up a charge against him before Caesar's friends and administrators because he was forbidding the payment. So he said, show me the coin. Whose image do you see? And they said, Caesar's. He said, so give to Caesar what is Caesar and God's what is God, which amounts to saying, if Caesar can require his image on a coin, cannot God require his image in a human being? So friends, that's the question that we need to ask. When we are faced with the very difficult and complex questions of civil authority and civil government, we need to not first ask the question, what do I have the right and the freedom to do? The Christian never starts from a perspective of personal self-interest. That is against the reality of the gospel. The Christian always starts with the question, what is it that I can do to most adequately and supremely reflect the glory of the God whose image I bear? And in doing so, 
What then can I do to most beneficially show that kingdom to other human beings around me? That's the question that the Christian asks when they're engaging the civic reality that they live in. And so it doesn't matter if you're in the United States of America under a constitutional republic. It doesn't matter if you're in Cuba underneath tyranny. It doesn't matter if you're in North Korea where you can't move around or South Korea where it has one of the largest evangelical Christian populations on earth. It makes no difference where you find yourself in this world. What culture, what social constraints, what political regimes... All of that becomes inconsequential when the proper question is asked, how do I render back to God what is God's? If that's the starting point, you land in a much better place. Much better place. So then, the next group decides to have a question session with Jesus as well. Sadducees come to him and they don't believe in the resurrection. So this issue is the authority and the word, not the authority and the world. So one group said, hey, how should we engage the world that we live in? Jesus answered them profoundly. Another group saw that he answered them well, and so they said, you know, what about interpreting the scriptures? How do we come to understand some of these kinds of things? How do we interpret the things of God? And so the Sadducees asked the very leading question, just like the other religious leaders did. It's one that they thought they already knew the answer to. And I, just as someone who's in, in, in pastoral ministry and answers a lot of theological questions a lot of times, I just want to let you know, if you're asking a question because you think you already know the answer and you want to have your answer confirmed, you're wasting everyone's time. That's not good. That's not healthy. That's not the way to be. If you're asking a very difficult question because you just really aren't sure and don't know, then praise the Lord, keep the questions coming. But the Sadducees were asking a question that they thought they already knew the answer to. And they knew that Jesus disagreed with him. They'd heard him teach publicly on the resurrection from the dead. And if they were paying half attention, they knew that he had raised someone from the dead. This really boggles my mind, but this is a free aside this morning. That the Sadducees alive during Jesus' ministry, who had either seen and or heard of people that he had actually caused to come back from the dead, would still continue to hold to a position that there's no resurrection and people don't come back from the dead. Like, you want to, like, I get it today. Like, Jesus isn't here. We're not watching him actually raise people from the dead. You know, Jairus' daughter and Lazarus, you know. And so it's kind of like speculative and you can put the whole speculative historical thing and the valuation of the documents and can we believe stories like this? And you're like, okay, cool, I get it. A couple thousand years later, sure. You were there. Like you probably had a conversation with Lazarus. Saw him walking around. Knew he was dead and now he's not. And you still believe that dead people are not raised even though you saw one. Friends, that is the, 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 the chief example of what's known as cognitive dissonance. It's where you so believe something that no amount of evidence will ever change your mind, even if that evidence stands right in front of you. I don't believe people come back from the dead. Psst, hey, I'm Lazarus. Shh, don't, people don't come back from the dead. Like the, I, I don't get it. I really don't get it. So they're still here. They still don't believe in the resurrection. They don't believe it's a thing. 
And so they're asking Jesus this trick question about the resurrection. They ask him this leading question. They said, a woman had multiple husbands. All those husbands were his brothers. It was a, a leveret law sort of thing, a brother taking a wife if he wasn't married so that that uh, brother's name could live on, the line could continue to live on. Uh, uh, if you want to read about it in the Old Testament, it's Deuteronomy chapter 25. It said, and so he said, all right, so she marries the one brother, dies, no kids. The other brother follows his obligation, takes her as his wife, dies, no kids, runs down the whole line of seven brothers. All of them die. There's never any kids, and then she dies. Whose wife... Will she be in the resurrection? I can almost see these guys kind of snickering and elbowing each other. Ah, we got him. We got him. Who's wife she going to be? Of course, they didn't believe any of this. They're just asking a question in an effort to trap Jesus. So the question wasn't seeking the truth. It's a self-congratulatory question. So Jesus corrects their wayward view of the word and their implications of the word. He points out that when people participate in the final glorious resurrection, they're not like they are now. They're not given in marriage. They become like angelic beings. There seems to be a change, a fundamental change in human relationship at that point. Where the way that we understand populating the world and what marital relationships are about ceases to be in some way that we can't quite comprehend right now because it's not how our world is currently. And he points out to them that we become more like the angels in that regard, neither being married nor given in marriage. And so he points out to them that their interpretation of the Scripture is wrong and it's wayward. Their implications from their wayward interpretation of Scripture have caused them to have a very flawed view of every other part of Scripture that they read. And that's the danger of having a poor interpretation of Scripture. The great professor, uh, Dr. John Lennox, in a little book called Seven Days That Divide the World, said this, We must remember that Scripture is our authority, not our interpretation of Scripture. And it's a very profound statement that he makes. Because sometimes our interpretations can be off. And when we get an interpretation that's off a little on this end, and we follow its pathway to where it leads us, it can have us way off somewhere down the line. And this is what happened with the Sadducees. They started with the presupposition that there's no resurrection. Why did they start with that presupposition? Because they believed that only the first five books of the Old Testament were actually true Scripture, and the rest of it was not authoritative. And in their journeying through the first five books of the Old Testament, they felt like they did not see the resurrection. There's plenty of places where it seems pretty explicit in the writings and in the prophets and the later parts of the Old Testament, but they didn't adhere to those. They didn't believe that that was the word. So they had a wrong viewpoint about the authority of the whole word itself. They had a wrong viewpoint about how much of the word they should trust. They had a wrong viewpoint about what the word was actually saying and was actually teaching. And so starting from that wayward position, they landed way off from where they needed to be. They were not yielding themselves to the authority of the word of God. And Jesus knew this. Their question reflected that that was the case. The word has preeminent authority, not our interpretation of that word. And so I want you to notice what Jesus does with them. He corrects their errant view of what it's like for people who have been raised in the, in the resurrection. But I want you to notice in verse 30, 37. 
Jesus says, but that the dead are raised. Notice what Jesus, I love how Jesus does this. Notice what he, he knows that this particular group of religious leaders, the Sadducees, only believe the first five books of the Old Testament. Only the first five. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. It's the only ones that they adhere to, only ones they think are authoritative, only ones they think are true word of God. So notice what Jesus does to them. Verse 37. But that the dead are raised, even Moses showed. Oh, you only believe the first five books of the Bible, do you? You don't think the first five books of the Bible teach anything about resurrection, do you? Let's talk about what Moses actually had to say about the resurrection. That's incredible. Notice what he doesn't do. And I think that we as as religious people sometimes miss the boat on this. He was standing face to face with a well-informed, thoughtful, intelligent individual that believes something vastly different than he did. That's who Jesus is standing in front of. Sadducees aren't dummies. They're not scrubs. They know what's going on. They're just not. And so he's standing there, and what Jesus could have been tempted to do was, well, we need to have a conversation about canonicity and the full authority of all the parts of the Bible and why you don't believe that. And like, he could have gone into all the weeds. He didn't do that. He started where they were. What do I know about this person? I know that this person believes that the first five books of the scriptures are authoritative and God's word and are true. They embrace them and they believe them and they adhere their lives to them and they've read them incorrectly and they don't see the resurrection in them. So I'm not going to go to the prophets. I'm not going to go to the wisdom literature. I'm not going to go to the Psalms of David. They believe Moses. So I'm going to go to Moses. We're going to find the common ground that we can find to get them to the truth. And he says, but that the resurrection is true, even Moses shows it. And then he goes to Moses. And what does he do? He cites Exodus 3.6. He says, where, the, where it calls the Lord is the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, in the Old Testament, you'd have to go back and look and see. When it's stated that way in Exodus chapter 3, it's stated affirmatively in the Hebrew text in the, in the uh, present tense. God, the Lord is the God of Abraham. The Lord is the God of Isaac. The Lord is the God of Jacob. Presently, right now, he is the God of those people. Why would that be problematic for someone who doesn't believe in the resurrection? Because by the time you get to Exodus chapter 3, all three of those men are dead. Hard to presently be the God of people who are dead if they're not going to come back to life. And so Jesus says, even Moses plainly teaches this to us by the way he writes about God's relationship with people who've already died. It's not the God of the dead, but he's the God of the living. It talks about that in a different rendering of the story in another gospel. And so we see that there's an issue of authority and the word and so Jesus closes this interaction with an issue over authority and the truth. Now it's Jesus' turn to ask a question. I'm really glad. Most of the time when I read the Bible, I'm like, oh, I wish I could have been there. I'm really glad I was not there that day. So Jesus turns to the crowd and 
They're affirming that he spoke well. They all are now lacking the courage to keep asking him any more questions because they've been made to look ridiculous in public. And Jesus says, I'll tell you what, I've got a question for you. The scripture teaches us that the Christ is David's son. And it's very plain in the writings and the prophets that that's the case. Said, so how is it that the Messiah is both David's Lord and David's son simultaneously? How do we have that? For David himself says in the book of Psalms, Psalm 110, The Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand till I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Therefore, David calls him Lord. How is he also his son? So Jesus, in asking this question, and we don't get a response here in this text in Luke, but in other Gospels, it, it essentially tells us that they were overwhelmed, that they didn't know how to respond, that they had to remain silent, that they couldn't comprehend the complexity of what it was that he was trying to show to them. Because they also had a wayward and a sideways view about who the Messiah was supposed to be. So Jesus and his word are the true authority. Jesus and his word speak on how we are to engage everything else around us, whether it's the the civil order that we live under in the world, whether it's the way that we approach the scripture and read it and try to interpret it. At the end of it, for the Christian, Jesus Christ and his word to us is the ultimate authority. He is the one we yield to. He is the one that we give over to. Why? Because He is King Jesus. He is the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. He has ultimate say and sway in everything in our lives. And the problem for most of us, if we're honest, I know it's true for me regularly, daily in my life. The rebellions that I want to have in the environments that I find myself in, and there are many, there are many. The way that I sometimes want to buck up against the code of law that exists in our country currently, whatever that code of law may be the way that I want to bump up against other authorities that have been placed in my life, the way that I want to bump up against the things that I know are the right and best practices that exist in the society that I live in, the way that I want to bump up against the authority of the word when I read it and the things that it says should be in my life that aren't and the things that it says should not be in my life but still are. And the ways that I want to try to twist the word and reinterpret the word and manufacture self-justification for myself. Well, I see that clearly the word says this, but that can't apply to me because I enjoy this too much. And so I have to find a way where that doesn't mean what it says so that it can mean the thing I want it to mean so that I can keep living my life the way that I want to. This is the outsource and the outflow of the sin that we first read about in the garden at the fall. There was a way that God set the world up. There was a regulation that God gave in his world. 
There was a natural consequence for a violation of that regulation. There was a word that he gave that could be interpreted properly that would maintain a safeguarding of the life of of religious interaction and, and intimacy and communion with God. And the human person presented by the great temptation from the old serpent, the devil, as the New Testament calls him. He says, has God said? Questioning the authority of the word. Well, no, no, no. God knows the day that you eat of it, you won't die. But you'll be like God. Rising to a place of authority that was never to be ours. Trying to have a greater reach in the civil order than what we were supposed to. Reach up and take this thing that doesn't belong to you that you shouldn't have that's been issued to you by the one who's in authority over you and enjoy the benefits of being greater than what you are. It's the first and original and great temptation. And friend, I could argue, and I think I could argue it well, that it is indeed the continued temptation of us to this very day. We want to be who we aren't supposed to be because we want to have what we aren't supposed to have because we want to be able to say at the end of it, I did what I wanted to do. And we have in our heart of hearts, every one of us, every one of us, we have in our heart of hearts a natural tendency to stand against and reject authority. Because we want to be in the place of God. We were made in His image and in His likeness and we decided long ago that that wasn't enough. We, like Satan, said no, but I will ascend to the very throne of God. And in the smallest possible ways, the smallest possible ways, we find ways to do that. Even when it makes no sense at all. Even when it accomplishes nothing of value and benefit in our lives. We have a strong draw toward rebellion. That's what our broken humanity has done to us. I'm going to close with a personal story. I don't usually do this, but I just want to illustrate this. Kind of like Augustine did with his uh, stealing of the fruit trees with his friends, even though they didn't want to eat them in his confessions. I'm going to, I'm going to give a, a story about this. Long ago, uh, well before I married uh, Amanda, um, but after I was able to drive, so sometime 187 years ago, um, I was going to my grandmother's house who lived in the country in North Mississippi for Thanksgiving. And uh, I was running a few minutes late, which was not normal, but I had some other kind of thing that I had to do that day, complete opposite side of town across the border in Memphis. And so I was running a little behind. And in my family, we're not like the good Italian family that I married into and my wife's family who will wait for you. They start eating if you're not there on time. 
and I uh, had a couple of uncles and a brother that meant there'd be no food left for me if I was much more than 10 or 15 minutes late. So I was in a hurry. And I knew this little town that my grandmother and my grandfather lived in because they were kind of back off. They owned like a 40-acre lot next to another 40-acre lot, and there's just not a lot of people there. And I knew the town well, and I knew how the town worked. And I knew that on that day, Thanksgiving Day, at 11.30 or whatever time it was when I was driving down that old country road, straight, wide open country road, I knew that the one lone sheriff, because I only had one, can't afford more than the one, was absolutely not working on Thanksgiving. He just wasn't. So I knew that when I got off of the interstate and rounded the corner onto that small, narrow, long, straight country road to get back to my grandmother's house, there would be no law. None. And my little Dodge Neon that was about to fall apart, that I had held together by duct tape because I was a poor college student. I rounded that corner and said, I'm running late. I don't like to speed, but I'm running late. Besides, I wonder if my car will hold together. And if it can actually do 100 miles an hour without flying apart into pieces and burning me into oblivion as I go down this country road. It read 120 on the dash is what it said it could do. It can't, by the way. Once I got to 105, and I actually felt the wind coming in through the doors and underneath my feet below, like the whole thing was about to implode on itself, I decided it was probably a good idea to slow down. Because of any righteousness in me? No, I just didn't want to die that day. Self-preservation trumped my desire to trump authority. But I knew... There was no benefit to it. It only got me to my grandmother's house two minutes faster than it would have just going the speed limit. I really didn't get there a whole lot quicker. It wasn't super beneficial for me to do that. But I knew I wouldn't get in trouble for it that day. And because I didn't think there was any authority that could call me into account, I did whatever I wanted to do. Why? For what great good reason? None at all. Except that my heart said, you know what? I'm not ever going to get to do this again. I think I'm going to do this today. That's the nature of our hearts. And some of you look at me going, that's the nature of your heart. That's exactly what the Pharisees and Sadducees would have said to Jesus, and he claimed that their hearts were just as dark as anybody else's. So be really careful with that. But the nature of the human person is rebellion. Left to ourselves without the grace of God, without the gospel of Jesus Christ, we are rebellious. That's who we are. Scripture makes this abundantly clear on almost every page. And so we have to, as citizens of the kingdom, ask ourselves some very important questions. Do I yield my desire to do what I want to do to the truth of Jesus Christ and His Word and what He would have me to be? And as some of you may have seen earlier this week on social media, I will repeat it again and close with this. The Lord Jesus Christ did not save us to be what we want to be and to do what we want to do. Rather, the Lord Jesus Christ has saved us to become what we ought to be and to do what we ought to do. There's a vast chasm between wanting and and oughtness. There's a way that I ought to be 
and it's an image bearer of Jesus Christ. That's the question when we are presented with difficult, complex things like this that we must ask. Am I being what I want to be? Or am I being what I ought to be? Let's pray together. Father God, we do thank you for challenging passages of Scripture like this one that call into account the darkness of our heart and our natural tendency towards rebellion. Father, I pray that you'll forgive us even in the small instances, the small moments where it's nothing but complete disregard for our image. When we reach out and we take and we touch and we taste, when we have no need of it, there's no benefit to it, there's no advantage behind it, it's simply just an act of rebellion. Father, I pray that our hearts, my heart, my wayward, sluggish heart would be oriented toward being like Jesus, yielding to his authority, subjecting myself to his word. Father, I pray that in my life and the life of those listening today, You would cause us by your grace and for your glory to give over our hearts of rebellion and instead to embrace a heart of yielding, a heart that's willing to bow, a head and a neck that's willing to bend to the majestic splendor, beauty, and glory of King Jesus. And we ask it in his name. Amen.